this great moment for me to understand that environment and body do have an effect on the brain. But I'm saying that the mind, that's something very individual. And that's something that holds the connection to the soul, to the individual spirit. And you can't scientifically pin that down. Hello, everybody. I'm Amelia, and you're listening to One to One. This week's guest is Stephen Hole, known for monumental works built all around the world that specifically invoke light, color, and porosity in programmatic and aesthetic ways. Hole can also be thought of as an artist's architect. His firm has done work for many arts institutions, he methodically sketches his projects in watercolors, and his style is heavily influenced by art practice and theory. He's also very interested in the phenomenology of architecture, how it's sensed by humans and its impact on our existence. I wanted to know how Hole uses different media, whether it's watercolors, dance, or film, in his practice and understanding of architecture. We spoke in a totally unremarkable conference room at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, the day before Hole was to give his keynote for the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture's conference. Well, we're here at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, where the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture is holding its conference every two years. And you'll be giving one of the keynote presentations tomorrow morning. The Salk Institute, of course, is a marvel of symmetry and light, designed by Louis Kahn in collaboration with Dr. Jonas Salk, who discovered the polio vaccine. And I would like to hear your about your relationship with, with Kahn in a moment. But as the folklore goes, the Salk Institute was founded on the idea that when Jonas Salk was looking for the polio vaccine. He was doing this research at the University of Pittsburgh and hitting a wall. He couldn't get past a certain point. He was getting incredibly frustrated working 18-hour, 16-hour days, and he decided he needed to take a break. He went to central Italy, stayed for a few weeks at the 13th century Franciscan monastery, and there he, so, so the story goes, had a breakthrough and was able to come back, complete his research, find a vaccine. Later on, when he developed the Salk Institute, he wanted to have a research facility that could emulate that environment that he experienced of inspiration and openness and new ideas. And so when he collaborated with Louis Kahn, those were the ideas he wanted to instill in it. And now, of course, the space is devoted for biological science, and it's also just an architectural icon. So for you coming here and with your history with Khan, what are the first things you notice about the space? And simply, how does it make you feel? I've been here, this is my fourth time. So I came here when it opened. I think it was 1976. Made a pilgrimage here. And it's always been an inspiration. But I have a kind of story to tell as well. And that is, I worked for Lawrence Halpern, the landscape architect in San Francisco. When I first came down here to see this, I knew this story that Lawrence Halpern was chosen by Salk to be the landscape architect of this incredible place, right? And uh, Khan, when Halpern arrived, I think the building was still, it was just starting construction. And Khan said, as soon as Larry Halpern arrived with his magic markers smelling of benzene, I knew I needed Barragon. And he convinced Salk to let Halpern go and ask Louis Barragon to come here and do the landscape. And Barragon came from Mexico City, and they were friends, and they respected each other, Barragon being also a genius architect. And when he came, he studied it, and he said to Con Lewis, there should be no trees in this plaza. And together they made this strip of water that matches, you know, that hits on the horizon. There's this wonderful moment, of course, near uh, the setting sun where the glowing stream that cuts the plaza, mat, you know, merges with the horizon. And that's one of the great magical moments of the space where this, this sort of space is carried off 
over the horizon in an infinite way. So I always remember whenever I, when I came here, I, I remember this connection to Baragon and his, you know, absolute uh, clarity of how to do this. So it's been a great experience coming back and back. It's never disappointing. And I'm really excited because I know Eric Kandel. So you're holding the book, Eric Kandel's Reductionism in Art and Brain Science. This is a brand new book that Eric and I both teach at Columbia University. And this is a brand new book that that Eric has just published, which is amazing. I just finished half of it on the plane on the way over. I see you're using your boarding pass as a bookmark. That's it. And uh, I really recommend this book to anyone in architecture or science or art, because it brings these fields together in an amazingly inventive way. Very inspiring book, by the way. And so I'm looking forward to tomorrow because I'm trying to speak to these points. And I made a little, I, I've been working, you know, I'm never going to be like Eric Kandel, but I, I made a, a, a lecture in five points. Environment, body, brain, and mind, concept phenomena, psychological space, light, exciting neural networks, and city, room, body, and space. So I divided these this talk into five topics. It's, I'm trying to connect basically to Kendall's work and to, to the ideas of the conference, and I've never done anything like this. So uh, it's a big mystery and excitement to me because it's totally new territory. Normally when I give a lecture at a university, I'm speaking about my work, of, uh, usually the recent projects and uh, giving a building in great detail because you, as an architect, the average time for a building between the first sketches and the opening is eight years. So it's, uh, it's a long process and you could just fill an hour with the work on one building. So I usually don't do a talk like this where I'm not giving a building in detail. This is, I'm trying to do something else with this and maybe it's going to be a disaster. I don't know. Well, your audience isn't exclusively architects, which I'm assuming at least at a school like Columbia where you teach, you can presume that your audience has an architectural sensibility. Here you have neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, psychologists, and a whole host of other building designers and architects as well. But you kind of have to vary your tone and your actual substance to that kind of audience. But that being said, you have done work before in this kind of cognitive aspects of drawing and production of designs. You co-authored a book with Yuhani Palazma, who's been a previous speaker. Questions of Perception. Mm -hmm. Who gave a keynote, I believe, at the last ANFA conference. So these ideas are certainly not outside of your entire work, really, in your purview of your of how you design and such. So going back to your work with Anfa and the keynote you'll give tomorrow, a lot of the discussions at this conference in particular is about what neuroscience can do for architecture. It's not so much a two-way street. It's really what the research in neuroscience can do for architects on a very basic level and actually what they can apply in their practice to make better work. For you, what do you feel is the most promising part of neuroscientific research for actual architectural design? Well, I, like you say, I've always felt that there are dimensions of neuroscience that have deep connections to how we experience architecture. In fact, in my lecture, there's this little story of my first year at architecture school at the University of Washington. They ask us to make an eight by eight by eight cube inside of that space, provide everything you need, your workspace, your sleeping space, et cetera, et cetera. And I drew this with a, a bubble over the top of it that I titled psychological space. And I said to the functionalists, teachers, the real necessity is the psychological space. And they gave me a good grade. They, they understood. So I've been thinking about this in those terms for years. In my book, Urbanism, I wrote a chapter called Psychological Space and how important this rather intangible, non-functional aspect of architecture is to the experience of architecture. You know, I love this quote of Winston Churchill, first we shape our buildings and then they shape us. And I think this connection to neuroscience gives credibility 
to this Winston Churchill quote, because what we can see now that we couldn't see, let's say, 20 years ago, because of the breakthroughs in neuroscience, is that there are absolutely clear dimensions of the brain and of genetic. You know, there's a field of what's called epigenetics, where we pass on from one generation things that we experience to the another to the another generation. Siddhartha Mukherjee has just written a book called The Gene. He's also a Columbia University professor. So for me, this is a wonderful moment in the connection between architecture and neuroscience because you can argue that there is a, a kind of scientific basis for the importance of our environments. When we build space, it's like saying, look, there's a scientific evidence for uh, Winston Churchill's statement, first we shape our, our buildings and then they shape us. You know, I came of age during a time of very cynical negativity called postmodernism, where the, the sort of figures, Charles Jenks, who's a friend of mine, he said, you know, basically architecture can't solve any problems of humanity. It's just what it is. And, you know, forget about the idea that you're going to change anyone's life with architecture, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and then we had, you know, sort of this sort of cynical eclecticism, pasteboard kind of architectural in games that were became basically the rejection of modern architecture and the rejection of any idea that architecture had any, let's say, scientific presence in shaping ourselves, our lives. What's interesting, by the way, is I'm working with Charles Jenks now on a Maggie's Cancer Cure Center in London, which is under construction. And Charles, his wife Maggie died of cancer. And it, this, there's, this, there are 11 of these centers now. And this one is under construction. And there's a book, The Architecture of Hope, that he made. And I said, Charles, you know, remember back in 1972 when you wrote The Language of Postmodernism and you said that architecture can't do anything and we should just... Well, you've changed your game, haven't you? And he kind of agrees that these cancer, what's what's interesting about these cancer centers and Zaha Hadid did one and Frank Gehry did one and a number of architects is the joy of architecture, the joy of the space, the joy of the, the inventive space in these cancer centers gives these people who are trying to recover from terminal cancer with their problems, gives them some kind of feeling of hope, gives the families a place of of enjoyment. So architecture does contribute and Charles is, you know, has to go back on his 1972 word. I was really excited to be involved in the conference because I believe that architecture does change the way we live our lives. And and, and I do think that in Mukherjee's book, the idea of epigenetics, that when you grow up in a great building or a great space, you carry that to the next generation in your genes. I think this is a very fascinating thought. And it's something that Mukherjee is giving many examples of in the book that this actually happens. It was brought up actually earlier um, before you were able to come in. There was a one of the presentations on architectural criticism that made the point that I believe it was by one of the members of the Society for Neuroaesthetics, which is an offshoot of um, John Hopkins. And they're doing research about neuroaesthetics. And their proposal was that architecture criticism isn't just some expert who's relaying information to a public or perhaps being an advocate or relaying information from the designer to the public. In fact, they actually, by having been around these buildings and studying them in a specific way, have not just learned about them to a level of expert, but have actually changed their brain chemistry and their genetic right. understanding of these things through experiencing these buildings, going to them, learning more about them in a way that they fundamentally relate to them differently than the general public, regardless right. of how many images the public has seen of that project. I find that absolutely fascinating because of the incredible image-dominated architectural media culture that we live in, where 
it's very easy for someone to write off in a project entirely without ever visiting it because of all of the ways that we feel, oh, well, I've seen all the photos or I've seen the drone footage or whatever, which is now becoming more and more scientifically undefensible because of what you're saying. And Granted as well, we have so much conversations around rapid urbanization in the global south and in China specifically, and you've done a fair amount of work in China in many different cities and areas that are rapidly urbanizing. And I was interested then how you kind of bring these two ideas together of like you're working in these areas that are going through these massive changes where you're becoming more and more aware of what a huge impact that is going to have on its inhabitants. Um, how do you kind of bring those two things together and make them work in the design? You know, whether it's the scale of the room, the body, or the landscape, or, or the city, the, the aspects are the same. That inspiring architectural space is a, is a positive catalyst to life. And I've had everything that we've realized in China has been terrifically successful. One of the, like the issue you, you're saying is this sort of problem of media is, I remember one of my first professors said, a building must be more than you when you go in it than when you look at it. You must go in architecture and experience it. You can't just look at it. And that's the kind of sickness we have of the internet is people are just looking at images. Architecture surrounds you like music. It's it's a it's a complete and spatial experience is something you can't get looking at a screen. So one of the things about our projects in China, like the linked hybrid, which is a public water garden and space, there are eight towers, 30 stories tall that surround this water garden and has cafes and cinema tech. And what's interesting is it became a super you know, popular place, not just for the residents, but for people to go there and, and, and be in this kind of public space in the city. Likewise, in Chengdu, where we did the sliced porosity block, both of these, by the way, have Vimeo. If anybody's curious to see what these buildings are, I thought that video is a better media because you can actually at least go in and turn the camera and give a feeling of space. It's much more important to go in and experience it. It's better than just an image to be able to turn and have a spatial experience. So we have been doing these Vimeo videos of our buildings in order to try to communicate deeper detail, space, reflection, light as the qualities of architecture, central to the qualities of architecture. So I, I think that, you know, for me, I'm very interested in the possibilities that these scientific dimensions get to be more articulated and we can begin to teach architecture in a way that indicates how important it is to future inhabitants of the earth. It's a, We spend 90% of our time inside of buildings. You know, they should be great spaces that give us a dimension in life that is inspiring. Have you incorporated these different research initiatives in neuroscience and architecture into your own teaching work? Yes, of course. I mean, like I said, the chapter on psychological space in urbanisms from 19, what was it? Eight years ago, I wrote, that's definitely, you know, you know, central to this argument. This is new to me. Epigenetics is a new discovery for me. For most people, I think as well, because previously it would have been seen as kind of heretical in that kind of understanding of what we are as humans, that we have genes and they show us how we're going to be and they're coded and you can't change them. That whole idea is now kind of out the window. Right. Which I think is, is fascinating. I think in Eric Kandel's book, he also touches on another dimension, you know, which well, I haven't finished reading the book yet, so I better not say anything about it. But uh, it it really does. It's like Mukherjee's book. It's cutting some new territory open for us to think about. And uh, I think it's very exciting. And, and uh, it gives a kind of more urgent dimension, I think, to architecture. And you mentioned briefly the videos that you're producing, I believe, are those with Spirit of Space? Yes. So I've seen a, a bunch of those, probably not all of them, but they are pretty remarkable. They really do give you far better idea of what you're getting into than, of right. course, just a bunch of static images. But of course, and it's always going to be necessary of architecture firms to have strong imagery of representing their work, not just for true archival, this is what I did, but 
selling it. So I'm wondering how your relationship with Spirit of Space kind of developed and how you collaborate over the production of one of these videos that kind of tours you through the building, often with your narration as well. It started in Korea, where we did the Dayang shipping gallery and house video. And uh, they came to Korea and it was an opening of this project. And I think it's also the beginning. They didn't, they weren't really started. And this video, to be honest, I didn't, uh, they were kind of walking around barefoot and they had these fuzzy microphone things that they were dropping in the water. And I thought, these guys don't know what they're doing. However, when I saw their first cut of the video, I said, wow, they're brilliant because they're architects. They're both trained as architects. And they decided that it was important to communicate architecture in video. So what's interesting is because they're architects, they understand it. They understand the detail. They understand the problem of light, of movement through space from their education. And they shoot a building in a different way. They shoot a space in a different way because of that. So now I think we've done like, what, 10 different films with them. I'm just heading back and they're going to do the experimental house, explorations of in-house in Rhinebeck. They're, we're going to do the film on October 7th about that house, which which is a tiny little house, which is about interior space being much, you know, being much more important to the extent where this house has no bedrooms, but it sleeps five and it it's totally green. It's geothermally heated and cooled, solar powered. And it has recycled glass facade, new kind of material in the facade, but it's all about these experimental volumes that are intersecting. And uh, it's just 950 square feet and we just finished it on July 2nd, but it already made the cover of global architecture in Japan. So it's a kind of tiny thing. So I really think, you know, for me, I'm an architect who believes that a single building, and it doesn't have to be large, can have more power than, you know, sort of a hundred mediocre things. So I'm very much against the idea that you have to have an office of 300 people or something like that. It's a silly idea, which somehow was given to us by, uh, you know, sort of uh, Dutch data people, you know. And I think I remember when Lou Kahn, I went to Lou Kahn's office because I was going to work there in 1973. And uh, unfortunately, he died. I was actually hired and I was getting ready to move from San Francisco. And he died before I could get back and work in his office. But at that moment, when he had Islamabad, he had Dhaka, he had many buildings going on. This building was under construction. There were only 16 people in his office. So you can be uh, look back in the history of architecture and see figures like Kahn or Le Corbusier had only six people at the end. And Chandigarh was under construction. So was the Heidi Weber Pavilion. So this idea that you have an office and you have to have like, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've been watching this sort of architectural, cultural world right now, but they'll get up and they'll, first thing they'll say is how many people they have in their office, which is a ridiculous. It's a sign of kind of like, I've conquered the world. Look, I have firms here with so many people at this office, so many people at this office. It has nothing to do with the intensity and the importance of architecture as an art. And now when we say it's an art with the scientific dimensions. I think this is interesting. I really love the idea that, you know, all the arts intersect. We teach a class called the architectonics of music at Columbia. And the reason I chose music is it's something that's very important to our psychological health, our emotional health. You know, I mean, it's one of the things at birth and at death at the end, you know, when my father was dying in his last week, music was super important. And I think, you know, it, it is to everyone and as is poetry. And I think so that when we teach this class, I believe every building has to be super green. I'm, you know, I'm always shooting for Leeds Platinum, but there are all these dimensions today that we all know, but then we forget the soulful dimensions, the spiritual dimensions. And that's why I chose Demetra Zacrelli and I teach this class. We'll teach it again in January at Columbia, the architectonics of music. And we, we use that as a way into the dimensions of architecture that are really emotional 
and spiritual. And the students really understand it. And we bring musicians and composers to discuss it. And everybody has a very interesting time. But it's still architectural space. It has a different origin point. So you believe that this neuroscientific research could actually help aid that overall emotional sense of building, which is often something that people say is going to do the opposite of. Why? Why would they say that? Because they fear it's going to exert a kind of dogmatic ruling over design processes that says this has to be this way and we can now prove or we can quantify. No, it's not quantifiable. In fact, my first slide is a diagram I made, just got back from Santorini and I was sitting in Santorini. I made this drawing, which is a blue background and that says environment. And then there's a kind of shape and that says body. And then there's another circle and that says brain. And then inside of that circle, I put a dotted line and there I put mind. So I'm saying that this great moment for me to understand that environment and body do have an effect on the brain, but I'm saying that the mind, that's something very individual. And that's something that holds the connection to the soul, to the individual spirit. And you can't scientifically pin that down. So I'm going to already be the conference bad boy. (laughs) Good luck. Enjoy. You can fend off the neuroscientists. Well, outside of neuroscience, you've also collaborated with dancers. Last year, a collaboration with Jessica Lang Dance Company. That opens in New York at City Center Ballet. Excellent. I think it's the 7th of October. Okay. So nearly about a year after the the first iteration. going around. It's going to be at the University of Washington in November. It's uh, in Houston. Uh, You know, it's it's traveling Mm -hmm. with Jessica Lang. So can you tell me about how you first initiated that collaboration and simply as a dance company with an architecture office, how you manage that collaboration. to me. Sarah was running the architecture biennial in Chicago. Sarah Herda. Sarah Herda, and suggested that Jessica come and ask if we could collaborate on a, on a, on a piece. And uh, there was some budget given by the Biennale. And uh, so she came, and she, she knew a little bit. I, I, I researched her dance, which I liked, the abstractness of it, almost like Mondrian colors, the wonderful kind of pieces that she had done. And when she came, we started to talk a little bit about music, and we had similar interests in Morton Feldman and Giannis Zanakis. So there was, we hit it off right away, and then we said, how can we give a structure to this? So I just immediately suggested, well, as a working method, and I sketch it out on the table right there. I said, why don't we try? It's a 20-minute piece. We divide it into four parts, five minutes each, and I'll just take the first year architecture studio that I did years ago about there are four types of architecture under the ground, in the ground, on the ground, and over the ground. So that's what we did. And the piece is in those four parts, under the ground, in the ground, on the ground, and over the ground. And that's the structure of the piece. And then the music are these different composers that we liked together. You know, the Morton Feldman, there's Giannis Zanakis there. I think she chose four or five different sections of music. And we did it, the whole thing together, you know, and they're going on tour with it. And it's, it's a, it wasn't easy. We did these big projections that the dancers actually occupy. But when you get to the section of over the ground, it's tesseracts made out of this fabric, this scrim fabric that like kind of fly off the stage. And then they, what I didn't understand about doing a dance set is they have to fold up into ski bags and get on airplanes and fly around with this because they have to travel with it. So the whole problem of doing this so that you could fold it up and go to the next city was a lot more difficult than we than we have anticipated, but it's all solved now. So they're, they're doing it. They're traveling with it. So what have you taken back from that experience to, to your firm work? I've learned that a performance on a stage is much more complicated than it looks. And the 
the layers of the bureaucracy that you have to go through in terms of the people who are going to pull the screens up or manage the ropes. I mean, it's enormously complicated compared to what I thought. So I have bigger respect for anyone that can do a stage sets for dance or or the theater because it's it's, uh, complex. But has that also changed or influenced the way that you would approach a, a regular building project simply through the collaborative methods that you might have developed with um, with Jessica? I think everything that you do in your life has the effect on the next thing. I'm very excited about that. That's why I, you know, I enter these competitions that I may not win, but somehow an idea will come, a, a, the kernel of an idea will start to emerge and maybe it could influence another thing in the future. So I think it, for me, it's very important to work all the time. And, uh, I can't go on. Vac- I mean, I was, I did two buildings while I was in Greece. I took three weeks off, but I designed a library in Malawi, a 60,000 square foot library in Malawi. And I sent the watercolors back to the office and this young intern, we were just experimenting with her. We didn't know what she could do. I mean, she, she did an amazing model. It's a beautiful project and I couldn't believe it. It was all done, drawn on watercolor, sent on an iPhone to the office and she made a 3D print model in section of this building. And uh, I just, we just had a pinup yesterday and I, I'm very, I'm totally amazed with her and we're going to present it to the client uh, when we go to Malawi probably in a month. You know, because it's kind of an experimental first stage of a project. I mean, I don't know if you know Malawi. Malawi is the poorest country in Africa, you know. So this is a this is my Korean client from the Dayang Shipping Company who's decided to dedicate himself to building a university in Malawi. And uh, he's already built the hospital and some of the some of the buildings. And he came to us and asked us to do the, the library, which he thinks should be the central building in the campus. And it's going to be 60,000 square feet. But, you know, I mean... First of all, there there's a real energy problem there. So the building really comes from making it all naturally ventilated, all natural light, and all solar powered. There's enough solar energy power in our design to actually power two or three of the campus buildings. We're working with Matthias Schuler of Transolar in Stuttgart. They're, we're always working with them doing our energy things. And uh, I'm very excited about this little project because I actually started it, and I never do this. I usually only start from my own conceptual sketch, which I try to measure all the aspects and try to balance. But here I thought the energy aspects are so important. Let me look at his diagrams for natural light. And it's in the southern hemisphere. So the the shapes face south instead of north. And I mean, it's a complicated thing and it's just a first sketch. But I began actually from his pragmatics of the energy and uh, developed this more poetic beginning. So, uh, yeah. And then we're doing, we have nine things under construction and about 10 things in design. And, uh, it's very exciting. I, I work all the time. So yeah, I was going to ask like, was this a vacation? It was a yes, vacation. I, okay. I, I, I'm always on vacation. <laughs> I'm always doing watercolors. That's easy to That's travel. The with. I work. That's yeah. the way I work. What are some of the, the most outside of architecture things that you've done that aside from what we've already spoken about, that you feel have had a, a positive impact on your practice? Well, well, I paint all the time. I mean, I'm making drawings and abstract paintings. And this is why this book to me is so fascinating, where he talks about Schoenberg, the great composer, making these incredible abstract paintings, which I never realized that Schoenberg had done this work. You know, I mean, it's fascinating. Eric really understands. This is Arnold Schoenberg, Self-Portrait 1910. And there's incredible painting, he says, the title is Thinking from 1910. Arnold Schoenberg, it's like a Turner, it's like a Kandinsky, you know, and uh, and here's a composer, a very major composer as a painter. 
Does this help you better understand his compositions, his music? I understand the emotion and I understand the, let's say, the power of the abstraction to be realized in different media. I also have a, lot, a huge poetry collection and read an enormous amount of poetry and, and write some. I think that also is a contribution. Music is important. I have an enormous music collection. Poetry, painting is important. My brother's a sculptor. So I think architecture needs to be connected to all these arts. As kind of a final to end out the conversation, you've been awarded tons of architecture awards. You're very well thought of. You don't need any of that like outside affirmation. However, oftentimes there's speculation about shortlists for Pritzker and such, and people are very quick to mention your name. And there's a even quicker mentions of whether this award means anything. What does it really mean? Is it really important? Does it really encourage the creation of good architecture and good architects? Do you have an opinion on that? You know, I I was very, very fortunate to receive the premium imp- Imperiali Award in Japan. And in some ways, I think it's much more important because that award is about the arts. It puts architecture beside music, beside sculpture, beside painting. And, you know, there are four or five laureates. And one of my great loves was Arvo Part and the music of Arvo Part. And he was given the premium imperial at the same time. So we all, we all spent like five days together in Tokyo, Dimitra and Arvo Part and I. And it was tremendous. And also the sculptor, Giuseppe Zamnini. And it was a wonderful experience. And anytime I'm with all architects, it's never as nice. I just feel that all the arts, the, the real dimension of connecting all the arts is where the excitement is. And uh, I'm not really interested in that sort of uh, category, you know, sort of, a, a sort of just architecture. It's not always about life. Life is much more complex. It's much more multidimensional, Well, it has been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So one more question for you. Do you have any music you'd like to share with us? In terms of stuff you're listening to, stuff you like, we have the ability to just post links or images on our show notes when we post the episode. So if there's particular tracks or music that you'd like to make. of Morton Feldman for me is very important. The Patterns in a Chromatic Field, Turf and Fragments. I think Morton Feldman's music finally is getting its due. He died in 1984. He was an amazing man. Wrote a number. There's there's a book. Give my regards to Broadway with a with a Philip Guston painting on the cover. A little paperback book that you can get of Morton Feldman's writings, which are f- tremendous because they cross over into all the arts. But I've been working with his music for years at Columbia University because there's a geometric potential to it and. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful John Cage. Of course, I knew I met John Cage. I, I met him a few times. You know, he and Morton were like that, right? Arvo Part's work, I think, he's the most played composer on the planet today. He's eighty two now or eighty one, and uh, you know, I think that that's you know he hit on some new way of composing, and uh, it's very important work. And uh, also Zanakis, all of Giannis Zanakis's work. There's a man who bridged architecture and music. He worked for Le Corbusier. He did the uh, Brussels Pavilion, that very famous pavilion in 1958, the Le Corbusier with the Varese music. And, uh, you know, my wife is Greek, so we're very interested in Ioannis Zanakis's legacy. And I had a chance to meet him once at Carnegie Hall where they were playing a very important piece that he had never heard because it took it had 180 musicians on stage and they performed it at Carnegie Hall and I saw him sitting in the second row. So I went down and I shook his hand. I said, I'm an architect. And I said, you know, you're the only 
I've read about La Tourette and where Le Corbusier gave you credit for doing all the design of the mullions along the hallways, according to music. And you're the only one that he ever gives credit for, for any parts of design. And I was shaking his hand. He looked at me and he said, I designed La Tourette. It was amazing. I mean, the guy was a force, amazing force. And I also think there's a a figure that's underexplored in terms of the relation of music and architecture is Zanakis. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Arconnect Sessions one-to-one with Stephen Hole. Dana Lovoynov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening.